Good evening. Welcome to the Just Sleep Podcast. I'm Tasha, your host. Every week, I will read you an old story to help you relax, put the stressful day behind you, and drift off to sleep. Occasionally, we will run ads in order to cover the costs of the production of the podcast. Rest assured, there will be no ads during or after the story. If you prefer an ad-free and intro-free show, you can join Just Sleep Premium. Visit justsleeppodcast.com slash Support for more information. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1, only from Rust-Oleum. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Tonight. I will be continuing the story of Black Beauty. So lie down, close your eyes, and let me read you a story. Chapter 12 A Stormy Day One day, late in the autumn, my master had a long journey to go on business. I was put into the dog cart and John went with his master. I always liked to go in the dog cart. It was so light, and the high wheels rang along so pleasantly. There had been a great deal of rain, and now the wind was very high and blew the dry leaves across the road in a shower. 
we went along merrily till we came to the toll bar and the low wooden bridge. The river banks were rather high, and the bridge, instead of rising, went across just level, so that in the middle, if the river was full, the water would be nearly up to the woodwork and planks. But as there were substantial rails on each side, people did not mind it. The man at the gate said the river was rising fast, and he feared it would be a bad night. Many of the meadows were underwater, and in one low part of the road, the water was halfway up to my knees. The bottom was good, and the master drove gently, so it was no matter. When we got to town, of course, I had a good bait, but as the master's business engaged him a long time, we did not start for home till rather late in the afternoon. The wind was then much higher, and I heard the master say to John that he had never been out in such a storm. And so I thought, as we went along the skirts of a wood, where the great branches were swaying about like twigs, and the rushing sound was terrible. I wish we were well out of this wood, said my master. Yes, sir, said John. It would be rather awkward if one of these branches came down upon us. The words were scarcely out of his mouth when there was a groan and a crack and a splitting sound, and tearing, crashing down amongst the other trees, came an oak, torn up by the roots, and it fell right across the road just before us. I will never say I was not frightened, for I was. I stopped still, and I believed I trembled. Of course I did not turn round or run away, I was not brought up to that. John jumped out, and was in a moment at my head. That was a very near touch, said my master. What's to be done now? Well, sir, we can't drive over that tree, nor yet get back around it. There will be nothing for it but to go back to the four crossways, and there will be a good six miles before we get round to the wooden bridge again. It will make us late, but the horse is fresh. So back we went, and round by the crossroads, but by the time we got to the bridge it was very nearly dark. We could just see that the water was over the middle of it, but as that happened sometimes when the floods were out, Master did not stop. We were going along at a good pace, but the moment my feet touched the first part of the bridge, I felt sure there was something wrong. I did not dare go forward, and I made a dead stop. Go on, Beauty, said my master, and he gave me a touch with a whip, but I did not stir. He gave me a sharp cut. I jumped, but I did not dare go forward. There's something wrong, sir, said John, and he sprang out of the dog cart and came to my head and looked all about. He tried to lead me forward. Come on, Beauty, what's the matter? Of course I could not tell him, but I knew very well that the bridge was not safe. Just then, the man at the toll gate on the other side ran out of the house, tossing a torch about like one mad. Oi, oi, hello, stop, he cried. What's the matter? shouted my master. The bridge is broken in the middle, and part of it is carried away. If you come on, you'll be into the river. Thank God, said my master. You beauty, said John, and took the bridle and gently turned me round to the right-hand side of the road by the riverside. The sun had set some time ago. The wind seemed to have lulled off after that furious blast which tore up the tree. It grew darker and darker, stiller and stiller. I trotted quietly along, the wheels hardly making a sound in the soft road. For a good while neither Master nor John spoke, and then Master began in a serious voice. I could not understand much of what they said, but I found out they thought, if I'd gone on as the Master wanted me, most likely the bridge would have given way under us, and horse, chase, master, and man, 
would have fallen into the river. And as the current was flowing very strongly, and there was no light and no help at hand, it was more than likely we should all have been drowned. Master said, God had given men reason by which they could find out things for themselves, but he had given animals knowledge which did not depend on reason, and which was much more prompt and perfect in its way, and by which they had often saved the lives of men. John had many stories to tell of dogs and horses and the wonderful things they had done. He thought people did not value their animals half enough, nor make friends of them as they ought to do. I am sure he makes friends of them if ever a man did. At last, we came to the park gates and found the gardener looking out for us. He said that the mistress had been in a dreadful way ever since dark, fearing some accident had happened, and that she had sent James off on justice the Roan Cobb towards the wooden bridge to make inquiry after us. We saw a light at the hall door and at the upper windows, and as we came up, mistress ran out saying, Are you really safe, my dear? Oh, I've been so anxious, fancying all sorts of things. Have you had no accident? No, my dear, but if your black beauty had not been wiser than we were, we should all have been carried down the river at the wooden bridge. I heard no more as they went into the house and John took me to the stable. Oh, what a good supper he gave me that night, a good bran mash and some crushed beans with my oats, and such a thick bed of straw, and I was glad of it, for I was tired. Chapter 13 The Devil's Trademark One day when John and I had been out on some business of our master's, and were returning gently on a long straight road, at some distance we saw a boy trying to leap a pony over a gate. The pony would not take the leap, and the boy cut him with the whip, but he only turned off on one side. He whipped him again, but the pony turned off on the other side, and the boy got off and gave him a hard thrashing and knocked him about the head. Then he got up again and tried to make him leap the gate, kicking him all the time shamefully, but still the pony refused. When we were nearly at the spot, the pony put down his head and threw up his heels and sent the boy neatly over into a broad, quick-set hedge, and with the rein dangling from his head, he set off home at a full gallop. John laughed out quite aloud. Served him right, he said. Oh, cried the boy as he struggled about amongst the thorns. I say, come and help me out. Thank you, said John. I think you're quite in the right place, and maybe a little scratching will teach you not to leap a pony over a gate that is too high for him. And so with that, John rode off. It may be, said he to himself, that young fellow is a liar as well as a cruel one. We'll just go home by Farmer Bushby's beauty. And then if anybody wants to know, you and I can tell him, you see. So we turned off to the right and soon came up to the stack yard and within sight of the house. The farmer was hurrying out into the road and his wife was standing at the gate looking very frightened. Have you seen my boy? said Mr. Bushby as we came up. He went out an hour ago on my black pony and the creature has just come back without a rider. I should think, sir, said John. He had better be without a rider, unless he can be ridden properly. What do you mean, said the farmer. Well, sir, I saw your son whipping and kicking and knocking that good little pony about shamefully, because he would not leap a gate that was too high for him. The pony behaved well, sir, and showed no vice, but at last he just threw up his heels and tipped the young gentleman into the thorn hedge. He wanted me to help him out, but I hope you will excuse me, sir. I did not feel inclined to do so. There's no broken bones, sir. He'll only get a few scratches. 
I love horses, and it riles me to see them badly used. It is a bad plan to aggravate an animal till he uses his heels. The first time is not always the last. During this time, the mother began to cry. Oh, my poor Bill, I must go and meet him. He must be hurt. You had better go into the house, wife, said the farmer. Bill wants a lesson about this, and I must see that he gets it. This is not the first time, nor the second, that he has ill-used that pony, and I shall stop it. I am much obliged to you, manly. Good evening. So we went on, John chuckling all the way home. Then he told James about it, who laughed and said, Served him right. I knew that boy at school. He took great airs on himself because he was a farmer's son. He used to swagger about and bully the little boys. Of course, we elder ones would not have any of that nonsense, and let him know that in the school and the playground, farmers' sons and laborers' sons were all alike. I well remember one day, just before afternoon school, I found him at the large window catching flies and pulling off their wings. He did not see me, and I gave him a box on the ears that laid him sprawling on the floor. Well, angry as I was, I was almost frightened. He roared and bellowed in such a style. The boys rushed in from the playground, and the master ran in from the road to see who was being murdered. Of course, I said, fair and square at once what I had done, and why. When I showed the master the flies, some crushed and some crawling about helpless, and I showed him the wings on the windowsill. I never saw him so angry before, but as Bill was still howling and whining like the coward that he was, he did not give him any more punishment of that kind, but set him up on a stool for the rest of the afternoon and said that he should not go out to play for that week. Then he talked to all the boys very seriously about cruelty and said how hard-hearted and cowardly it was to hurt the weak and the helpless. But what stuck in my mind was this. He said that cruelty was the devil's own trademark, and if we saw anyone who took pleasure in cruelty, we might know who he belonged to, for the devil was a murderer from the beginning and a tormentor to the end. On the other hand, where we saw people who loved their neighbors and were kind to man and beast, we might know that was God's mark, for God is love. Your master never taught you a truer thing, said John. There's no religion without love and people may talk as much as they like about their religion, but if it does not teach them to be good and kind to man and beast, it is all a sham. All a sham, James, and it won't stand when things come to be turned inside out and put down for what they are. Chapter 14 James Howard One morning early in December, John had just led me into my box after my daily exercise and was strapping my cloth on, and James was coming in from the corn chamber with some oats when the master came into the stable. He looked rather serious and held an open letter in his hand. John fastened the door of my box, touched his cap, and waited for orders. Good morning, John, said the master. I want to know if you have any complaint to make of James. Complaint, sir? No, sir. Is he industrious at his work and respectful to you? Yes, sir, always. Never find he slights his work when your back is turned. Never, sir. That's well. And I must put another question. Have you any reason to suspect, when he goes out with the horses to exercise them, or to take a message, that he stops about talking to his acquaintances or goes into houses where he has no business, leaving the horses outside? No, sir, certainly not. And if anybody has been saying that about James, I don't believe it. And I don't mean to believe it unless I have it fairly proved before witnesses. 
It's not for me to say who's been trying to take away James's character, but I will say this, sir, that a steadier, pleasanter, honester, smarter young fellow I never had in this stable. I can trust his word, and I can trust his work. He's gentle and clever with the horses, and I would rather have them in his charge than in that of half the young fellows I know of in laced hats and liveries. And whoever wants a character of James Howard, said John, with a decided jerk of his head, let them come to John Manley. The master stood all this time, grave and attentive, but as John finished his speech, a broad smile spread over his face, and looking kindly across at James, who all this time had stood still at the door, he said, James, my lad, set down the oats and come here. I'm very glad to find that John's opinion of your character agrees so exactly with my own. John is a cautious man, he said with a droll smile, and it is not always easy to get his opinion about people. So I thought if I beat the bush on this side, the birds would fly out, and I should learn what I wanted to know quickly. So now we will come to business. I have a letter from my brother-in-law, Sir Clifford Williams of Clifford Hall. He wants me to find him a trustworthy young groom, about twenty or twenty-one, who knows his business. His old coachman, who has lived with him twenty years, is getting feeble, and he wants a man to work with him and get into his ways, who would be able, when the old man was pensioned off, to step into his place. He would have eighteen shillings a week at first, a stable suit, a driving suit, a bedroom over the coach house, and a boy under him. Sir Clifford is a good master, and if you could get the place, it would be a great start for you. I don't want to part with you, and if you left us, I know John would lose his right hand. That I should, sir, said John, but I would not stand in his light for the world. How old are you, James? said Master. Nineteen next May, sir. That's young. What do you think, John? Well, sir, it is young, but he is as steady as a man, and as strong and well-grown, and though he has not had much experience in driving, he has a light, firm hand and a quick eye, and he's very careful, and I'm quite sure no horse of his will be ruined for want of having his feet and shoes looked after. Your word will go the furthest, John, said the master, for Sir Clifford adds in a postscript, If I could find a man, trained by your John, I should like him better than any other. So James, lad, think it over, talk to your mother at dinner time, and then let me know what you wish. In a few days after this conversation, it was fully settled that James should go to Clifford Hall in a month or six weeks, as it suited his master, and in the meantime he was to get all the practice in driving that could be given to him. I never knew the carriage to go out so often before. When the mistress did not go out, the master drove himself in the two-wheeled chase. But now, whether it was master or the young ladies, or only an errand, Ginger and I were put in the carriage, and James drove us. At first, John rode with him on the box, telling him this and that, and after that James drove alone. Then it was wonderful what a number of places the master would go to in the city on Saturday, and what strange streets we were driven through. He was sure to go to the railway station, just as the train was coming in, and cabs and carriages, carts and omnibuses were all trying to get over the bridge together. That bridge wanted good horses and good drivers when the railway bell was ringing, for it was narrow, and there was a very sharp turn up to the station where it would not have been at all difficult for people to run into each other if they did not look sharp and keep their wits about them. Chapter 15 The Old Ostler 
After this, it was decided by my master and mistress to pay a visit to some friends who lived about 46 miles from our home, and James was to drive them. The first day, we traveled 32 miles. There were some long, heavy hills, but James drove so carefully and thoughtfully that we were not at all harassed. He never forgot to put on the drag as we went downhill, nor to take it off at the right place. He kept our feet on the smoothest part of the road, and if the uphill was very long, he set the carriage wheels a little across the road so as to not run back and give us a breathing. All these little things help a horse very much, particularly if he gets kind words into the bargain. We stopped once or twice in the road, and just as the sun was going down, we reached the town where we were going to spend the night. We stopped at the principal hotel, which was in the marketplace. It was a very large one. We drove under an archway into a long yard, at the further end of which were the stables and coach houses. Two ostlers came to take us out. The head ostler was a pleasant, active little man with a crooked leg and a yellow striped waistcoat. I never saw a man unbuckle harness so quickly as he did, and with a pat and good word he led me to a long stable with six or eight stalls in it and two or three horses. The other man brought ginger. James stood by while we were rubbed down and cleaned. I never was cleaned so lightly and quickly as by that little old man. When he had done, James stepped up and felt me over, as if he thought it could not be thoroughly done. But he found my coat as clean and smooth as silk. Well, he said, I thought I was pretty quick, and our jaw quicker still. But you do beat all I ever saw for being quick and thorough at the same time. Practice makes perfect, said the crooked little ostler. And it would be a pity if it didn't. Forty years' practice, and not perfect. Ha! That would be a pity. And as to being quick, why, bless you, that is only a matter of habit. If you get into the habit of being quick, it is just as easy as being slow. Easier, I should say. In fact, I don't agree with my health to be hulking about over a job twice as long as it need take. Bless you. I couldn't whistle if I crawled over my work as some folks do. You see, I've been about horses ever since I was twelve years old, in hunting stables and racing stables. And being small, you see, I was a jockey for several years. But at the Goodwood, you see, the turf was very slippery, and my poor Larkspur got a fall, and I broke my knee, and so, of course, I was no more of use there. But I could not live without horses, of course I couldn't, so I took to the hotels, and I can tell you it is a downright pleasure to handle a horse like this, well-bred, well-mannered, well-cared for. Bless ye, I can tell how a horse is treated. Give me the handling of a horse for twenty minutes, and I'll tell you what sort of groom he has had. Look at this one. Pleasant, quiet, turns about just as you want him, holds up his feet to be cleaned out, or anything else you please to wish. Then you'll find another, fidgety, fretty, won't move the right way, or starts across a stall, tosses up his head as soon as you come near him, lays his ears and seems afraid of you, or else squares about at you with his heels. Poor things. I know what sort of treatment they have had. If they are timid, makes them start or shy. If they are high-mettled, makes them vicious or dangerous. Their tempers are mostly made when they are young. Bless you. They're like children. Train them up in the way they should go, as the good book says. And when they are old, they will not depart from it, if they have a chance, that is. I like to hear you talk, said James. That's the way we lay it down at home, at our master's. Who is your master, young man, if it be a proper question? I should judge he is a good one, from what I see. He is Squire Gordon of Birtwick Park. The other side of the Beacon Hills, said James. Ah, 
So, so, I've heard tell of him. Fine judge of horses, ain't he? The best rider in the county. I believe he is, said James. But he rides very little now, since the poor young master was killed. Ah, poor gentleman. I read all about it in the paper at the time. A fine horse killed too, wasn't there? Yes, said James. He was a splendid creature. Brother to this one, and just like him. Pity, pity, said the old man. "'Twas a bad place to leap, if I remember. A thin fence at top, a steep bank down to the stream, wasn't it? No chance for a horse to see where he was going. Now I'm for bold riding as much as any man, but still there are some leaps that only a very knowing old huntsman has any right to take. A man's life and a horse's life are worth more than a fox's tail. At least I should say they ought to be. During this time, the other man had finished Ginger and had brought her corn, and James and the old man left the stable together. Chapter 16 The Fire Later on in the evening, a traveller's horse was brought in by the second ostler, and while he was cleaning him, a young man with a pipe in his mouth lounged into the stable to gossip. I say, Towler, said the ostler, just run up the ladder into the loft and put some hay down into this horse's rack, will you? Only lay down your pipe. All right, said the other, and went up through the trap door, and I heard him step across the floor overhead and put down the hay. James came in to look at us the last thing, and then the door was locked. I cannot say how long I had slept, nor what time in the night it was, but I woke up very uncomfortable, though I hardly knew why. I got up. The air seemed all thick and choking. I heard Ginger coughing, and one of the other horses seemed very restless. It was quite dark, and I could see nothing but the stable was very full of smoke and I hardly knew how to breathe. The trap door had been left open and I thought that it was the place it came through. I listened and heard a soft rushing sort of noise and a low crackling and snapping. I did not know what it was, but there was something in the sound so strange that made me tremble all over. The other horses were now all awake. Some were pulling at their halters. Others were stamping. At last I heard steps outside and the ostler who had put up the traveller's horse burst into the stable with a lantern and began to untie the horses and tried to lead them out. But he seemed in such a hurry and so frightened himself that he frightened me still more. The first horse would not go with him. He tried the second and third, and they too would not stir. He came to me next and tried to drag me out of the stall by force. Of course, that was no use. He tried us all by turns and then left the stable. No doubt we were very foolish, but danger seemed to be all round and there was nobody we knew to trust in, and all was strange and uncertain. The fresh air that had come in through the open door made it easier to breathe, but the rushing sound overhead grew louder, and as I looked upwards through the bars of my empty rack, I saw a red light flickering on the wall. Then I heard a cry of fire outside, and the old ostler quietly and quickly came in. He got one horse out and went to another but the flames were playing around the trap door and the roaring overhead was dreadful. The next thing I heard was James's voice, quiet and cheery, as it always was. Come, my beauties, it is time for us to be off, so wake up and come along now. I stood nearest the door, so he came to me first, patting me as he came in. Come, beauty, on with your bridle, my boy. We'll soon be out of this smother. It was on in no time. Then he took the scarf off his neck and tied it lightly over my eyes, and patting and coaxing, he led me out of the stable. 
Safe in the yard, he slipped the scarf off my eyes and shouted, Here, somebody, take this horse while I go back for the other. A tall, broad man stepped forward and took me, and James darted back into the stable. I set up a shrill whinny as I saw him go. Ginger told me afterwards that whinny was the best thing I could have done for her, for had she not heard me outside, she would never have had the courage to come out. There was much confusion in the yard, the horses being got out of the other stables, and the carriages and gigs being pulled out of houses and sheds lest the flames should spread further. On the other side of the yard, windows were thrown up, and people were shouting all sorts of things, but I kept my eye fixed on the stable door, where the smoke poured out thicker than ever, and I could see flashes of red light. Presently, I heard, above all the stir and din, a loud, clear voice, which I knew was Master's. James Howard, James Howard, are you there? There was no answer, but I heard a crash of something falling in the stable, and the next moment I gave a loud, joyful neigh, for I saw James coming through the smoke, leading Ginger with him. She was coughing violently, and he was not able to speak. My brave lad, said Master, laying his hand on his shoulder. Are you hurt? James shook his head, for he could not yet speak. Aye, said the big man who held me. He's a brave lad, and no mistake. And now, said Master, when you've got your breath, James, we'll get out of this place as quickly as we can. And we were moving towards the entry, when, from the marketplace, there came a sound of galloping feet and loud, rumbling wheels. Tis the fire engine, the fire engine, shouted two or three voices. Stand back, make way. And clattering and thundering over the stones, two horses dashed into the yard with a heavy engine between them. The firemen leapt to the ground. There was no need to ask where the fire was. It was rolling up in a great blaze from the roof. We got out as fast as we could into the broad, quiet marketplace. The stars were shining, and except the noise behind us, all was still. Master led the way to a large hotel on the other side, and as soon as the ostler came, he said, James, I must now hasten to your mistress. I trust the horses entirely to you. Order whatever you think is needed. And with that, he was gone. The master did not run, but I never saw a mortal man walk so fast as he did that night. The next morning, the master came to see how we were and to speak to James. I did not hear much, for the ostler was rubbing me down, but I could see that James looked very happy and thought the master was proud of him. Our mistress had been so much alarmed in the night that the journey was put off till the afternoon, so James had the morning on hand and went first to the inn to see about our harness and the carriage and then to hear more about the fire. When he came back, we heard him tell the ostler about it. At first, no one could guess how the fire had been caused, but at last, a man said he saw Dick Towler go into the stable with a pipe in his mouth, and when he came out, he had not one, and went to the tap for another. Then the under-ostler said he had asked Dick to go up the ladder to put down some hay, but told him to lay down his pipe first. Dick denied taking the pipe with him, but no one believed him. I remembered our John Manley's rule, never to allow a pipe in the stable, and thought it ought to be the rule everywhere. James said that the roof and floor had all fallen in, and that only the black walls were standing. The two poor horses that could not be got out were buried under the burnt rafters and tiles. Chapter 17 John Manley's Talk The rest of our journey was very easy, 
and a little after sunset we reached the house of my master's friend. We were taken into a clean, snug stable. There was a kind coachman who made us very comfortable, and who seemed to think a good deal of James when he heard about the fire. There's one thing quite clear, young man, he said. Your horses know who they can trust. It is one of the hardest things in the world to get horses out of a stable when there is fire or flood. I don't know why they wouldn't come out, but they won't, not one in twenty. We stopped two or three days at this place and then returned home. All went well on the journey. We were glad to be in our own stable again, and John was equally glad to see us. Before he and James left us for the night, James said, I wonder who is coming in my place. Little Joe Green at the lodge, said John. Little Joe Green? Why, he's a child. He's fourteen and a half, said John. But he's such a little chap. Yes, he is small, but he's quick and willing and kind-hearted too. And then he wishes very much to come, and his father would like it. And I know the master would like to give him the chance. He said if I thought he would not do, he would look for a bigger boy. But I said I was quite agreeable to try him for six weeks. Six weeks, said James. Why, it will be six months before he can be of much use. It will make you a deal of work, John. Well, said John with a laugh, work and I are very good friends. I never was afraid of work yet. You're a very good man, said James. I wish I may ever be like you. I don't often speak of myself, said John. But as you're going away from us, out into the world to shift for yourself, I'll just tell you how I look on these things. I was just as old as Joseph when my father and mother died of the fever within ten days of each other and left me and my sister Nellie alone in the world without a relation that we could look to for help. I was a farmer's boy, not earning enough to keep myself, much less both of us. She must have gone to the workhouse for our mistress. Nellie calls her her angel, and she is right good to do so. She went and hired a room for her with old widow Mallet and gave her knitting and needlework when she was able to do it. And when she was ill, she sent her dinners and many nice, comfortable things, and she was like a mother to her. Then the master, who took me into the stable under old Norman, the coachman that was then there. I had my food at the house and my bed in the loft, and a suit of clothes, and three shillings a week, so that I could help Nellie. And then there was Norman. He might have turned round and said that at his age he could not be troubled with a raw boy from the plough-tail, but he was like a father to me, and took no end of pains with me. When the old man died some years after, I stepped into his place, and now of course I have top wages, and can lay by for a rainy day, or a sunny day, as it may happen, and Nellie is as happy as a bird. So you see, James, I am not the man that should turn up his nose at a little boy, and vex a good kind master. No, no. I shall miss you very much, James, but we shall all pull through, and there's nothing like doing a kindness when tis put in your way and I am glad I can do it. Then, said James, you don't hold with that saying, everybody look after himself and take care of number one. No, indeed, said John. Where should I and Nellie have been if master and mistress and older Norman had only taken care of number one? Why, she in the workhouse and I hoeing turnips. Where would Black Beauty and Ginger have been if you'd only thought of number one? Why, roasted to death. No, Jim, no. That is a selfish, heathenish saying, whoever uses it, and any man who thinks he has nothing to do but take care of number one, why, it's a pity, but what he had been drowned like a puppy or a kitten before he got his eyes open, 
That's what I think, said John with a very decided jerk of his head. James laughed at this, but there was a thickness in his voice when he said, You've been my best friend, except my mother. I hope you won't forget me. No, lad, no, said John. And if ever I can do you a good turn, I hope you won't forget me. And the next day, Joe came to the stables to learn all he could before James left. He learned to sweep the stable, to bring in the straw and hay. He began to clean the harness and help to wash the carriage. As he was quite too short to do anything in the way of grooming Ginger and me, James taught him upon merry legs, for he was to have full charge of him under John. He was a nice little bright fellow and always came whistling to his work. Merrylegs was a good deal put out at being mauled about, as he said, by a boy who knew nothing. But towards the end of the second week, he told me confidentially that he thought the boy would turn out well. At last, the day came when James had to leave us, cheerful as he always was. He looked quite downhearted that morning. You see, he said to John, I'm leaving a good deal behind, my mother and Betsy and you, and a good master and mistress, and then the horses and my old merry legs. At the new place there will not be a soul that I shall know. If it were not that I shall get a higher place and be able to help my mother better, I don't think I should have made my mind to it. It is a real pinch, John. Aye, James, lad, so it is. But I should not think much of you if you could leave your home for the first time and not feel it. Cheer up. You make friends there. And if you get on well, as I'm sure you will, it will be a fine thing for your mother and she will be proud enough that you've got into such a good place as that. So John cheered him up, but everyone was sorry to lose James. As for Merrylegs, he pined after him for several days and went quite off his appetite. So John took him out several mornings with a leading rein when he exercised me, and trotting and galloping by his side, got up the little fellow's spirits again, and he was soon all right. Joe's father would often come in and give a little help, as he understood the work, and Joe took a great deal of pains to learn, and John was quite encouraged by him. Good night. <laughs>